0: Welcome back to a new series of The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. This week we're talking about one of the most powerful and perhaps one of the most vulnerable of political ideas, the rule of law. This is the principle that the law is sovereign and everybody in a society, including the government, should be equally subject to the law. It's an idea of some antiquity, but in recent times it's particularly associated with democratic societies where the rule of law, theoretically ensuring justice for all, is contrasted with the rule of man, in which the government takes what action it wishes, often using the law as its instrument. The rule of law is certainly not the same thing as law and order, and in fact there is bound to be a tension between laws and orders, between the agreed rules of society and the perceived requirements of authority to impose its will. The rule of law is sometimes cited as one of Hong Kong's core values. But we'll be asking, can the rule of law actually exist? Or is it just a pious aspiration? Is it compatible only with some forms of government and not others? With me to discuss the rule of law are two scholars from Hong Kong University. Johannes Chan is professor and former dean of the law faculty at Hong Kong U, a prominent figure in debates about law and government in Hong Kong. Professor Chris Hutton is an intellectual historian in the School of English at Hong Kong U, who's written books about political issues in language and linguistic issues in the law. So the government has to obey the law. This is the right. essence of the rule of law. Could you elaborate a bit on this definition?
1: Uh, the trouble is uh, the definition has been debated for centuries now, uh, and no one gets an uh, authoritative definition. Uh, definition. Well, see what you can uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, starts, uh, with, uh, a book by Albert Dicey, uh, called Law of the Constitutions, which is the leading text, uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's the first one who coined this term, rule of law. And since then, it has undergone many different changes and facets in it. The essence of it comprised probably four major aspects. Uh, the first aspect is, uh, there has to be rule law in the first place. Uh, so it is used in contradistinctions to arbitrary governance. So which means that, uh, not only should the government uh, bound by the law, but then th- there should be law. The law has to be reasonably accessible to the public. The law has to be drafted in a way which is reasonably foreseeable. Uh, it would not be an absolute blanket power uh, or totally uh, 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 open-ended law. So when you
0: say law, you mean a written-down law?
1: Right, a bunch right. Of this statutes. is the first level. Uh, so there have to be written laws, either statutes or common law. But it, to start off with this, you have to have some laws. Uh, so it is used in the sense of gaining against the uh, uh uh the arbitrary will uh, of the government and then the second level is that now this has to be supported by the institutions and uh, one of the most important institutions is the judiciary and independence of the judiciary uh, forms a second level uh, and a very crucial level of the rule of law Uh, because uh, whenever there is dispute between government and law uh, and and the citizens or in the old days the king and the subject, Mm -hmm. uh, you need someone who is impartial and independent to adjudicate the dispute Uh, so independence of the judiciary plays a very important role in the rule of law and so in Hong Kong. Got-
0: one a set of laws, a set r- of laws which is down, accessible know. and foreseeable. And two, the, the independence
1: independence of the judiciary. Give, okay. Right. Uh, and a third, um, slightly more specific aspect is it also refers to a whole set of procedural protections, uh, and these include things like um, uh, the the rule against bias. Uh, so if someone is making a decisions, uh, that that person should be impartial. So that originate from the judiciary, but then it has been extended to a whole range of government bodies or administrative tribunals uh, because governments are involved in making decisions at, uh, almost every day which have a far reaching consequence on the life of ordinary people
0: so these are not laws these are not, these are procedural methods. requirements right
1: yeah okay. uh, and um, conflict of interest for example comes mm. in from here. Uh, a right to be heard, uh, which is important if someone is making a decision adverse to your interest, at least you have a chance uh, to make your case before the final decision is made. So this uh, is a set of procedural protection, uh, primarily trying to guarantee a fair outcome or a fair decision process. So this is the third aspect of the rule of law. Okay. And the last aspect uh, is more abstract and it goes to certain values underlying the entire system. So the fact that you have a set of law and even if you have independent judiciary and uh, procedural safeguard, if the law is draconian, there's not much you can do. Uh, So uh, a higher level is law has to subscribe to certain fundamental values of justice, fairness and in particular the protection of human rights. Uh, And this comes mainly uh, in the late 19th century, 20th century, uh, that law has to conform to a higher set of values uh, and if law... uh, does not conform to that set of values. It does not deserve the characterization of law. And the debate is particularly intense uh, in the Second World War about some of the Nazis' law. Uh, are they law in a the sense they have a set of laws properly passed by parliament, mm-hmm. uh, but leading to genocide? So this would be
0: so. The the defence that I, I was just, I was I was within the law mm. would not hold if the law itself.
1: Although that is extremely controversial, yeah. uh, and. From a a political philosophy's point of view, yes Uh, and if certain laws even if they have passed through or or gone through a proper procedure but if they are laws which for example authorise arbitrary killing, Mm. uh, it would be very difficult to justify them as law although technically they might have the status of law but that is certainly not Uh, in favor of uh, not uh, what rule of law means.
0: So this is very interesting because I can see that your first three Mm. legs of of the rule of law are relatively straightforward. They're they're visible. They they can be understood and assessed. But the fourth one seems to be very wobbly because it's just really a set of values or a notion of rights um, that – Right. In, yeah, in,
1: in modern days is, uh, um, most jurisdictions will have their own constitutions, uh, mm-hmm. where they set out a, uh, a list of fundamental rights and so on. Right. Uh, and usually that sets of rights, uh, form the basis, uh, of, um, uh, for characterizing or, or, or assessing whether the law conforms to those kinds of values. And um, the, the, uh, sorry to be simple about this,
0: but the con- is the constitution a law?
1: Constitution is normally are uh, part of the law, right. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, so when we talk about rule of law we are not really referring to any particular statutes uh, or institution but rather refer to a whole set of values that embody fairness uh, that embodies um, uh, justice and so on uh, but then they are uh, shown uh, or they, they are manifested in different facets so uh, so the mere fact that we say government should obey the law that basically go to the first one or two levels in a way Uh, there are a whole lot of things about the the quality of the law accessibility of the law uh, and how far the law is conducive to the public goods in a way.
0: Let's go back upstream a bit um, to begin to answer the question where some of these things come from. So Chris Chris Hutton um, can can you give us just a sketch of something of the intellectual history of this principle?
2: I think the um, the heart of the matter com- it all comes to a head in the seventeenth century, in the constitutional upheaval. So, one of the key ideas in sort of pre-modern law is the divine right of kings. I mean, in the monarchy. So, you have famously Magna Carta in twelve fifteen, where the barons and the sort of wrestle some concessions from the king. And this, I think, although if you read the history of it, it's all rather it's not as clear cut as it was later made out. In the seventeenth century, Magna Carta became a kind of uh, tool against the monarch and the the power of the monarchy, and I think then you do start to get people talking about ideas which are recognisably modern about the the king is also subject to the law, and this is a very radical idea. I think. So it, it Magna right Carta,
0: to. this this is a charter signed. Under duress, apparently. In a way, by, yes, by yes. King. I mean, yes. In, mm. um, in a field of <laughs> a field, Which.
1: <laughs> funny me, Which. Uh, a king was who is, who is illiterate as well. <laughs> yeah, there's, okay, I mean,
0: the, on. So, th- this was a charter which, in some way, limited the rights of the sovereign to do whatever he wanted. Yeah, you know, at least the promise. I mean, it's a mm. kind of promise.
2: And it yeah. has a lot of ups and downs. I think it becomes more an ideological tool much later. Okay. You yeah. know when it's used against uh, James I and then Charles and so on. And, uh, okay,
0: so then, fast forward, then we're in the, the next, in the 17th, 17th century, century, where where we've got, where the monarchy is in major trouble. We're talking about, about England, yeah. principally. Principally, right? yes.
2: There's a famous occasion where Sir Edward Cook basically told King James you're not above the law. Um, you're you're you, not you, above the law. Yeah, and he, King James wasn't greatly impressed by this. And I'm sure he, was said <laughs> <laughs> and he said this is a kind of treasonable statement. So it's right. quite a, I think it's a very very significant moment, even if the surrounding politics are always much murkier than they appear in retrospect. And I, I think I found a Scottish theologian who was talking about, um, called Samuel Rutherford in 1644, he said, the prince remaineth, even being a prince, a social creature, a man as well as a king. It's one who must buy, sell, promise, contract, dispose. Ergo, he is under, under law. So, so This is in the middle uh, of the civil war. Yes, it's a very strong statement because the king is no longer this special person who's outside all the rules that apply. Um, so I think this is very significant. What is amazing about the idea of rule of law is precisely that sovereignty is divided and that government in a way constrains itself or the governmental system has in it a constraint on its own power. I think... Whatever cynicism one brings to this idea, I still think it's a really important and powerful political ideal and worth
0: you know, striving for. Uh, so in the 17th century and, and thereafter, the sovereign ceases to be absolute in, in some jurisdictions, okay? not, not in all. And in England, it's the, the Civil War. Uh, the king is defeated. He's put on trial. Oh, this good. is a proof that, that he's subject. To yes, law. certainly, yes. Mm. <clears throat> Found guilty. Beheaded. Which is a pretty strong statement. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Fairly emphatic. Um, of course, the monarchy was restored, and even today, I think I'm right, Professor Chan can correct me, the queen in, is technically mm. above the law still, actually, because the uh-huh. queen is the law, in a sense. Anyway, I leave that to the <laughs> constitutional lawyers. We can discuss it. Um, I think then you have a tussle between parliament and the king, mm. and then one of the things that parliament got was control, I think, more control over the budgets and things. But this is a very uneven process, and I think Dicey is, is a very key figure because I think it's at the end of this very long tussle between Dice is the, 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 the late the 19th Dice. century and the Johannesburg. Yeah, mentioned, yeah, where he really lays it out. Mm. Then he starts saying, actually, the rule of law is in decline. Mm. At the end of the 19th century? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think because um, he sees the rise of a sort of administrative (laughs) state with lots Mm. of uh, uh, bureaucratic rules Mm. and delegated, and and this goes on now with, you know, if you look at the current Mm. debate about the EU, that there's all these Mm. um, directives coming from Brussels. So
0: there's this very strong sort of legal nationalism, I think. But before we get to Dicey, um, um, in let 's say in the eighteenth in, in the time of enlightenment you 're getting all this discourse about rights, true um, and that right. must be feeding into the argument mm. citizens' yeah. rights human rights, right, rights of man right. rights of women
1: right now, in, in, indeed, uh, the two strands that, that come up one is uh, the, as Chris mentioned the, the Magna Carta, all this history indeed roll up into one thing is the supremacy of the king mm. uh, it 's given way to supremacy of parliament, uh, and that leads to a lot of based later on about democracy uh, so the king is subject to the people's, uh, people's rep- view represented by parliament, so that is one, one aspect of it. The other aspects from Magna Carta, although originally it is a charter uh, which free only the, the, the barons from mm. the king uh, mm. and its political impact has been far more, uh, more far-reaching than uh, it intends to be, uh, and underlying is also the whole idea of the due process of law which also creeps into uh, the uh, modern notions of the rule of law uh, and Dicey has been severely criticised since then, although he is uh, attributed uh, and credited for using these terms and so on, but partly I think it is one aspect of his view, uh, is he's extremely critical about the administrative states, and particularly mm-hmm. because he was influenced by the French system, uh, and he thought that it's a hopeless system, uh, and, and he didn't want UK to go down that route uh, by putting a lot of powers now outside the government in these administrative bodies with nothing about the law, etc. Now that has uh, been, you Universally criticized as an outmoded, uh, and outdated views, Uh, and but nonetheless, uh, the 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 whole idea that rule of law binds the government and government has been extended, uh, and in modern days, the the problem with the government is a lot of government function is taken or undertaken outside the formal government machinery. from hospital, education, transport, these are all done by statutory bodies or so-called independent body outside the government. So rule of law, in a way, now embody the whole range of quasi-government or statutory bodies that there are certain due process that they have to comply with. So the picture is becoming more
0: complicated with more... And more diverse as well. Yes, okay.
2: That's why you you have the rise of judicial review, I guess, because of all this. (laughs) Judicial review? Yeah, as, as a key
0: instrument...
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that—that's in a way a procedure to to enforce rights, particularly in the administrative law, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and just tradition.
0: explain what it is, so I can appeal against a decision made. This is not by. Not in the courts necessarily. This is
1: in the court. Uh and uh, the classic judicial review, at least in the English system, uh basically it is a procedure which allows any citizen who is aggrieved by any decisions made by the governments, uh, to go to court, uh to challenge that decisions uh on the basis that uh it is either outside the law because the government official has no power to make that decision uh, or because of uh, failure to observe due process, uh, it is unfair, uh, uh, biased and so on. So this is basically a procedure which is a a fairly simple procedure to allow citizens to bring their grievances to court and let the court adjudicate on the matter. This is different from appeal. Uh, this is different from appeal uh, and one major difference is on appeal you look at the decision afresh and then make the decision again in judicial review it is uh, said to be exercising a supervisory function which the court is uh, the function of the court is one to see whether it is within the power of the administrative body to make that decision and secondly whether statutory procedure and other common law procedure has been followed Uh, if this has been done it is not the function of the court to say uh, whether this is the right decision whether this is a wise decision or even whether the court will make the decision in the same way so these are the functions outside judicial review
0: okay oh. um, i want to go backwards again because i'm still in in the 19th century right and i'm thinking about the way that the rule of law which is now quite a mature idea in europe mm. actually is one of the things that gets exported with empire So, this will have an effect on on the history of Hong Kong, right? So, that the the Britain's colonial possessions, the rule of law is supposed to operate there as well, is that right?
2: Yes, I think this is a a slightly (laughs) tricky question. A very tangled question, and I think Um, maybe starting from the end, I mean, Patton, the, the last governor of Hong Kong, made the rule of law in a way stand for the British colonial. What British colonialism brought, and but if you look back through the history of Hong Kong and through, the, of course, the rule of law is, shall we say, shaky in many periods, and of course there was not equality before the law in many of these colonial societies. Mm. So it's something in the way of an embarrassment, I think, if you look at it from the centre. I mean,
0: since, but you know, it, it is, it's a claim that's often made, isn't it, by a de-con, by a departing colonist, yeah. that they're leaving behind a gift, and the mm. gift is the rule of law.
2: I think there is something in that because mm. the, at least the ideal has been shared, even if in practice the British colonial regimes didn't live up to it, but it did set a benchmark of how, you know, what they should have done or how they should have behaved, and that I
1: mm. think is
2: an important, mm. maybe it is an important legacy because some of the basic ideals that Professor Chan was talking about I think are in, you know, extremely important but very difficult to maintain mm. you know, because of the surrounding political culture also needs mm. to support them. Well, but, at least
1: this is true that uh, in most um, Former colonies, what the British left behind, one is there is a legal system. Mm. Uh, there are laws uh, which to a certain extent regulate the government bodies. Uh, and in most cases, they also left behind a judiciary, uh, some more independent than the others and some more competent than the others. So by and large, I think these, as far as these two aspects are concerned, it is fair to say uh, the British did leave behind a legacy. Some other principles evolve in the common law. Uh, and that was transmitted to different colonies through case law. So, for example, in the, most of the leading cases on procedural fairness, that was not developed even in England until the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of our leading cases on fairness, on right to be heard, they are all developed in 1960, 1970s, and then that was imported into a lot of former colonies through the common law route. So, in, in that sense, it would probably be true, but just like everything, and particularly um, <clears throat> with a lot of colonial history, I think Chris is certainly right, uh, that enforcement of the law remains uh, a lot to be seen. Uh, Equality certainly is not there Mm. Um, and and in some uh, former colonies, corruption is also serious uh, and coupled with also um, the sort of nationalisms uh, and and ethnic conflicts in different uh, colonies.
0: This has been very Eurocentric so Mm. far so I wanted to ask you, Johannes, is, is there a tradition of the rule of law in, in Chinese legal history?
1: Chinese uh, not, philosophy. not quite, uh, at least not in the same way. Uh, one is um, law is traditionally perceived as something very negative uh, and particularly in Chinese history in the last 2,000 years and since uh, the Confucianism uh, uh, becomes popular, the uh, emphasis is on the rights, R-I-T-E-S rights. Uh, right. So uh, civilized people observe rights uh, yes. and so you don't really need law. Uh, law is required only for those uneducated, outlaw criminals. So, uh, law was developed primarily in the criminal law area. So, it is not true that china does not have law indeed uh in the qing dynasty which is two thousand years ago uh, the hang dynasty and then when it comes to the tang dynasty about a thousand years ago law was at its height in a way in the, ta- the tang law is still being studied today mm-hmm. uh but one is it is primarily about criminal law and secondly there was some commercial law uh in the tang code but not in the earlier days uh part of the reasons is uh Business people are also ranked very low in China. China, so it's yes. the, always the, the educated people, the the government officials, uh, so uh, uh, um, and labor is even ranked higher than than businessmen. So you have some. That's why you have law for commerce because. These are regarded as a low rank people next to criminal and so on. So you have the law there. Uh, and and then over the years now, when it comes to Ming Dynasty and particularly the Qing Dynasty, the law becomes more complicated. Uh, and in the Qing Dynasty, it is a very sophisticated uh, code. Uh, and the Qing Code uh, covers now a lot more area on family law, uh, inheritance, and some of these were still used uh, in Hong Kong today and in Taiwan. Uh, and, but then, of course, that the criminal law is still highly developed, uh, in, in penalty. So that's the concept of Chinese, uh, um, um, idea really of law. It
0: sort of starts with law and order.
1: Probably. Law and order, uh, and yeah. it is really for enforcement for, uh, maintaining the regime, uh, maintaining yeah. the sovereign. So there's no idea of independence of the judiciary. Indeed, the, uh, the judiciary doesn't exist as such. Uh, the, the best judge, uh, in China, uh, in all the legends, uh, the, the, Judge Pao, mm. uh, he's the Mayor of the, of the province. He is the head of the investigation. He conducts criminal investigation. He is the trial judge. He passed sentence. He's the prosecution as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Where is he now? <laughs> All right. Let,
0: let's just turn the table a bit and have a go at the, at the rule of law. Um, because we're speaking about the rule of law as, as if everyone agrees that it's, it's the greatest thing. But there are arguments against it. You right? could be said, for example, that uh, an observation of the rule of law makes governments <clears throat> weak. Makes it difficult for the sovereign to, for example, introduce improvements that need to be made, and so on. Um, Chris, I'm turning to you for the case against the rule of law. There's a whole you know, sort of line of, of criticisms. I think from the left, you have the classic Marxist
2: critique. You know, Marxist theory of law is rather underdeveloped because they see law as just part of the capitalist system and it's reflecting the ideology of the ruling elite, and so on. So they don't accept this idea of neutrality, I think, which underlies it. And then you have the right-wing critics who see who, – who pick up the argument you mentioned, which is you need charismatic authority to get things done. You, and this law is a kind of pedestrian slowing up of, of the sort of le- – you know, of the leadership – you know, the leadership is, the, is constrained. The yes. Nietzschean view. Yes, it is, right. and it goes into sort of fascist rhetoric in the mm. 20th century. I think there are more general critiques about um, the law still has a lot of the mystique and of the monarchy and the symbolism and the arcane language and so on, that it is removed from the everyday domain, and, and therefore it, it, it has this sacred quality which is und- un- lacks transparency and is undemocratic. I mean, I could go on, there's more, there's sort of I think there's also an issue about the rule of law for people who are not citizens of the state I mean, we have migrants and so on, and international rules, and I think that's a very interesting issue now.
1: There's a line which I liked very much in uh, the play of uh, A Man for All Season, uh, in the context when Henry VIII uh, wants the divorce law uh, to get passed, and uh, the Lord Chancellor, uh, Mm -hmm. Sir Henry Moore refused uh, to accept that. And there was one conversation where his nephew asked him, uh, and uh, in, in, in light of the opposition of Sir Thomas More and he said if the law of England is like the forest I will cut it down to the very last tree uh, and Sir Thomas More replies yes and if you are the man who can do it and if you cut down to the last tree and the devil turns around where are you going to hide yourself okay. uh, and in a way it sums up the idea of opposition is yes rule of law does not uh, produce efficient government in, in one sense because uh, it is obstructive, but on the other hand it, it protects uh, the peoples uh, and ultimately protects the governments it makes the governments more fair uh, more acceptable to the people so there are certain price efficientisto aristocracy, aristocracy is much better than democracy because they are not efficient so mm-hmm. in, in one sense yes if, um, uh, if you want efficiency uh, the A system with the rule of law may not be the most efficient. Uh, On the other hand, it guarantees that you can't go too wrong. Uh, And for an efficient system, we need a a, a wise ruler. Uh, And historically, this proves to be a futile expectation. (laughs) So in in that sense, some people say that rule of law is actually a negative verdict on human nature. Ah, Yes,
0: (laughs) that's interesting. (laughs) But still, we we have to circle around to one of the places where we began, which is Mm. the law has to be good. Right. Right. Um, if, if you have laws which are nakedly serve the interests of a particular class or mm. are unfair to minorities or something, mm. then obeying them is not going to ensure a, a just or better society. Right.
1: But that's why rule of law is from time to time linked to the democracy, yes. uh, the democratic system, because uh, if you don't have that system, you can't guarantee uh, that the, the law uh, is fair at the end is there are still laws which you find that they are not entirely fair uh, law could be used to further certain interests of the ruling classes. these sort of things always happen uh, without a democratic system so uh, within the constraint I think we have the rule of law uh, on the basis that uh, one we still have an independent judiciary second there are still a relatively free press which can monitor the government uh, and thirdly is um, this idea uh, forms almost a core value of the populace.
0: In a rule of law society, what would be the signs that the rule of law is being threatened? Because um, there must be occasions where you've had rule of law in society and then you lose it. There right. must be occasions where you haven't
1: had it and then you've got <laughs> it. So It's usually a gradual process, uh-huh. uh, and uh, <clears throat> if you lose it suddenly, usually that comes with revolution. Uh, sort of that situation there will always be a sort of gradual erosion. Uh, a few things one is when you have a very obstinate uh, government uh, who is not prepared to listen uh, who has a very strong view of doing things who are prepared to ignore the opposition's mm-hmm when the political climate is right, uh, like Second World War, Germany, uh, and so when you have strong leaders like Hitler, he's able to pass any law he likes. Now, that that would be a first sign that the system is breaking down. Uh, And second sign is uh, the judiciary uh, becomes weakened, uh, and that happens in the 1980s in Malaysia when judges have been extremely active uh, and in exercising their power of judicial review. So up to a point, the Prime Minister didn't like them, so he removed the Lord Chief Justice. The Lord Chief Justice then seek judicial review uh, and get to the yeah. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court support him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing, Prime Minister's remove six out of the nine judges from the okay. Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, and that becomes a major constitutional crisis. Right? Yeah. That would be a very bad <laughs> sign. Uh, and then they are also... Um, Fear among the people mm. uh, when people are no longer saying things that they want to say, worrying uh, certain consequences, etc. Uh, that again would be as or, or, or people are now advocating very strongly sometimes because national security reason, Sometimes because a very bad criminal, so he deserves punishment. So we don't. Why should we give them trial?
2: Yeah, I think that's an important point. The rule of law is not populism. It's not mm. about the popular will being expressed directly. And I think that. Rule of law sits in a set of interlocking social and political institutions. This sort of ecology. So I think the rule of law on its own can't, can't be self-sustaining. It's dependent on this surrounding political and social e- ecology.
0: Thank you. I wish we could go on, but we have used up our time. So thank you very much indeed, Johannes Chan, Chris Hutton, and thank you for listening.